is awesome. Thank you guys for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Uh, welcome to Pen Pen Pals episode 21. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Alex, and this is your other host, Ben. Sorry. Oh, so close. And uh, today, <laughs> I should give you a little more warning next time. Okay. Uh, today, we have two returning guests, uh, and they have a common theme together with them. Uh, we have Andre and David with us. I am Andre. Hello. My name's David. <laughs> This is such an enthusiastic start. <laughs> <laughs> We're not all wearing big pink suits. <laughs> uh, and David is laying down, so we know that he's enthused. Yes, I'm very, this is about as excited as I get before work. Uh, work? That's perfect. So that's what, that's the theme you have together. Yeah. <laughs> Along with me, all three of us work at Domino's and... We all have multifaceted relationships with each other, but that's how they all started. Yeah. Ben Ben has eaten Domino's. I have. Oh, that's true. true. I've made Domino's <laughs> pizzas before. You tell Ooh. lies. You tell lies. <laughs> He's a rogue pizza maker. He sometimes sneaks he into pizza it. shops. <laughs> I mean, that's what happens when you give Nick the keys, you know? That's true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> so we're glad to have both of you back. We're very excited uh, to have you on for this episode because this episode is kind of a look back into the past and I've known all three of you for a long time, very like some time. And so it's kind of a cool look back into a history that we can all share together. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Did anybody have any crazy things that happened to them this week? Anything they want to share? Um. Uh, I was wondering if any of you guys had seen a uh, anime called My Name or Your Name. I think it is. Oh yeah, Your Name. Yeah, yeah. Um, have you guys seen it? I think so. I have not seen it. I remember you recommended it to me. Yeah, I bought it and I hadn't watched it. And like three people have suggested I watch it, and I'm like, God, that sounds familiar. Oh wait a minute, I bought that like three <laughs> different times. So um, after we're done, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna watch that. It's a good one. That's super exciting. And it's on the Amazon. I got now I am old. It's on the Amazon. <laughs> put it on the Amazon. I put it on there. So yeah, or you can you can also add an S. It's on the Amazons. <laughs> Are you going to Walmart? Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, I didn't really have any intro stuff to ask you guys about or talk about. So how how are the pee pods? How's the pee pee pod update? <laughs> They're doing quite well. Some of them have reached six inches already and they wow. are up on the supports. I mean, it is getting a little cooler. So there, it, there's a possibility that they die eventually, like before they sprout. But I think I'll get some pee pods before it's out. Uh, how about our friends of the podcast, the Pen Pen Pals podcast update? Yeah, so I guess... There are two kind of new, um, newish podcasts that I've listened to a few episodes of now, and I like, I like them the way they're producing stuff. So it comes from Freakonomics, who's had a podcast for a really long time, and that's kind of a pair between this writer and this economist. Um, they started a network, and now they each have their own shows. So one is called People I Admire. It's an interview podcast that The Economist does, or People I Mostly Admire. I don't know. It's just really high quality. He's like a smart, empathetic dude, picks interesting people, asks interesting questions. And then the other one is called No Stupid Questions. And so that's the journalist. um, And then it's co-hosted by the psychologist who wrote this book called Grit. 
um, and it's just them kind of talking about random stuff, but they both know a ton of social science, so they bring up lots of interesting things. And that is the PP Pals Pod podcast update. Both sound interesting. Two solid recommendations. People mo- I mostly admire and no stupid questions. Stupid Those are both questions. great titles. Yeah. <laughs> I actually really like the, that first one. People I mostly. Yeah, like mostly is in like uh, is in parentheses. Ooh, okay. Caveat. That's how Neon Genesis does its uh, after series titles. They all have like not in it or something. Always parentheses. Parenthetical. Always parentheses there are. <laughs> okay, so let's get into it. Last time on, I was a teenaged Ava plug. Seal wasted Masato's time. The damage to units 00 and 02 went beyond the Hayflick limit, while unit 01 simply needed some bandages. Shinji, having been absorbed by Ava 01, had an out-of-body experience, literally. Half revelation, half fantasy, all hallucinogenic. The nerve team, shaken from the latest angel attack, which hit a little close to home, scrambled to move their office back to a previous facility. They took time out of packing to attempt a pilot extraction, a dangerous procedure which has only been tried once and resulted in death. Ritsuko thought 50-50, good odds. Asuka went through a crisis of ego while Ray, I don't know, probably spent more time inside her spinal tube. With hard work and a little push from the other side of the veil from Shinji, the operation was a success and Shinji survived reborn and wetter than ever. Misato gave Ritsuko a lift home from work and then spent some tender moments with Kaji. Is their love blossoming? Will Ritsuko and Misato's friendship reach a new stage? Will Seal stop wasting everyone's fucking time? Let's find out. This time on The Birth of Nerve, episode 21, Seal kidnaps Fuyutsuki and interrogates him about Nerve and Gendo's true intentions, revealing events from the past. Ryoji goes missing. Mysterious. Very scary. Are you talking about Dr. Katsuragi's super solenoid theory? That theory is far too radical, I must say. It's still nothing more than a hypothesis at this stage. But there's no other way to explain how that giant could be powered adequately. Well, it's right in front of us, so you cannot deny its existence. Scientists have far too much faith in their deliberations. You think they're dogmatic? They're far too obsessive. No one's touched it. These are people who cannot accurately perceive reality. Yet these are the people entrusted to discover the truth. It's ironic. There's nothing noble about that. Discovery grants them elations, and understanding paves the way to hegemony. They seek self-gratification. Nothing more.
real rough. Yeah. Edits are different this time again, and I think the music is different than it usually is. David, are you using your note function? Yeah. I'm taking notes on my phone. <laughs> on my note. With my S Pen. Your S Pen? Yeah. Samsung Galaxy S Pen. So close. This isn't a plug for a company that uh, bashes unions. If only it was an S2 pen, it would be perfectly thematic. Yeah. I guess I have more questions than notes. Yeah? Oh, that's good. Hopefully I have some answers for you. So this episode aired February 21st, 1996. February 21st, 1996. Cool. So I, I think that in the future we should do like a, uh, a Young Justice type thing where we actually watch it on the date that it aired. So we'll have to find the episodes that aired when we want to do this. <laughs> okay. Well, we can, you and me can start another one that's re-listening to these podcast episodes, right? As we re-watch the show and we'll do it all on the date. So we'll have to, it's coming up, right? We have to figure out the air date of the first one so and then to, start from there. So we're going to be triple dating it? Mm-hmm. It's a re-listen, re-watch show now. On, on the date that we re-listen to it. Gotta sync everything up. It's like, <laughs> it's like the planets aligning. So you're going to be like rec- listening to yourself, listen to the podcast? Mm-hmm. 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 Triple view, triple date. <laughs> this is a great idea. I love it. How many layers, man? Like you were talking in your episode, you know, how many, how many layers do you want to peel back? How far do you want to take this rabbit hole? <laughs> Well, if we mess up one of those, they're going to have to wait like 700 years before it lines up again. <laughs> There's this weird podcast called like, this was a terrible idea or something like that, where like these two friends watch the same bad movie every week for a year and then recorded a podcast like right after watching it every time. That sounds like something I want to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> Like, that's such a stupid concept. And I want to listen to it. (laughs) Perfect title. Yeah. They're true heroes. They're subjecting themselves to pain for our experience, uh, like our curiosity of what that must be like. You know, I I can't imagine what that does to a person. Um, (laughs) Like, I watch a bad movie and I'm like, oh, man, what a a terrible movie. Uh, It was kind of cool about this, about that. But I'm like, never have to watch that again. I can't imagine Mm. watching a movie the first time seeing how bad it is and knowing that you just are going to have to keep watching. (laughs) Oh, wow. I tripped this pencil in my eye. I can't watch it this week. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I seem to have put uh, acid in my eyes instead of contact. Well, okay. So this is a really hard hitting episode. It's, I think the only time in the series, definitely the only time thus far that we got a cold open, right? Yeah, I think so. First, it shows us the most information we've seen about the second impact. Cause we've seen like the wings of light. And I think maybe we even saw the, uh, a glimpse of the giant. Uh, and we saw the explosion when we saw that Misato, how Misato survived it. But this is the first time that we've seen footage and heard audio from right before it happened. The only voice I could pick out was Gendo. Like there's definitely a distinct voice he was talking to, but I didn't recognize it from anywhere else. I didn't know if that was supposed to be one of the SEAL Council or I'm not sure. Yeah, and I was listening to it in Japanese. I could not discern their voices from each other. Yeah, I think in Japanese, it might be a number of different voices and then Gendo. There's a lot going on. It's very hard to pick them out. Um, I would like to look up this date, but we'll do that a little later. Uh, August 15th. 
year 2000. I wonder if anything interesting happened then. Yeah, I was going to say, th- this is one of those scenes where you wonder if there's a budget animation reason. So it's a lot of um, kind of just still shots of backgrounds with kind of static on top of it to add some motion to an otherwise still frame. Um, yeah, there's this kind of chaotic mm-hmm. audio that's like panned hard left and hard right. And the the Gendo part is kind of interesting. I wondered if it was a little bit of a meadow commentary where he's kind of like, these people, you know, they want to understand what's going on, but like they're not capable of understanding and whatever, whatever. And if that's like kind of like mm. Ano taking a little dig at, at some of the otaku fans who are like complaining about the show or something like that. Yeah, it sounds like something you would do. Yeah, I mean, and this was probably one of the hardest episodes to follow. Like, I didn't have as much of an issue this time, but the first time I watched it, I was like, when is this? How many, like, they, they do a very good job of, like, you know, telling you the year, but then it's, like, back and forth and kind of yeah. going, like, it's 2003, now it's 2001, now it's 2015, now it's 1999, now it's this, now it's that, and I'm like, okay, I know, I recognize yeah. these characters, and I can tell they're supposed to be younger, but I can't really, I, I don't know, I thought that person just got shot, I don't understand, <laughs> like... Yeah. Yep. I uh, what I did is I took the memento route and I actually tattooed what was going on on my arm. <laughs> so I just kept referring to it. But the problem is that now the episode's over, and I have all these. Oh well, I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> just just watch this episode every week. Oh yeah, for the this next episode. year. <laughs> <laughs> At least it didn't suck. I'll look forward to it. <laughs> yeah, for there's the first, a lot like, going on. <laughs> Oh, and the only bit of like lore I gleaned from that opening was that they talk about uh, Dr. Katsuragi, which is Masato's father, talking about a super solenoid theory. So that must be what S2 stands for. We talk about the S2 cores oh. and the angels, ah. super solenoid maybe. Oh, that's pretty cool. And now we know that Masato's father, Dr. Katsuragi, that's why he was there. He's doing theoretical work on the power supply for the angels. Um, or more specifically, Adam, right? Because that's what the giant is that we see. And it does look a lot like an Ava, right? Yes. So like we see that the design at least of the Avas comes from somewhere. And even though an angel in it, or an Ava, I'm sorry, in its, uh, I guess, natural state, it does not have the shoulder pylons. We saw that in a previous episode where Ava 01 kind of like cast off its armor uh, because it was restraining devices, right? But Adam's uh, outline or the giant of lights outline actually does have the the same kind of shoulder pylon thing. Hmm. Well, do you know if those were put onto it? I don't. I don't. Know. I don't know. It doesn't show us like what exactly the experiment even is. It says that they inject DNA into Adam, and that DNA undergoes fusion. That's all I picked up. So I don't know what kind of experiment that is, but. <laughs> Um, so then we find out that this grainy tape we've been watching is some top secret UN footage. It's kind of like one of those FBI copyright. You wouldn't steal a car. <laughs> <laughs> and then you don't know me. And then we get the uh, the opening song. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, well, we need one for every episode, so you can add them. All well, together. yeah, I did a little. Never mind. I'm gonna. Pick it up. <laughs> don't you worry about how I edit these episodes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and then after the opening song, we come back in a minute with Kaji, and Kaji's trying to leave a voicemail for... Well, no, he's trying to call Misato. I guess he does leave the voicemail. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at the same time that 
Kaji is trying to call Masato. Masato is being questioned by these two, I don't know what to call them, men in black. Like she knows who they are. They haven't come out of nowhere. They're part of Nerve. They're the S2 security or something like that. Security, security. <laughs> no, it's the super solenoid security. Right, right, it's the S3, S3. Oh, I see. I like it. And Kaji mentions that the the Nerve card that he has it's colored red and he says that's like blood and so i guess like everything that's red in the show is like blood <laughs> not a lot of that yeah so because of misato's associations with kaji she's also a suspect she kind of willingly complies with them we also find out that kozo has been kidnapped uh you might have just said this mm. so cut that out if you did and then cut this out if you didn't <laughs> <laughs> Either way, you got work to do. So uh, she finds out that Kozo has been kidnapped. <laughs> uh, we see him tied up and he's kind of interrogated by the SEAL Council. And, and it's kind of similar to that. Um, I guess it's the Human Instrumentology Project, that thing that we called like the UN Security Council for a while, where it's kind of these screens and different people. But in this case, there's kind of one you know, Kozu is the real person in the middle. And then we have all these blank screens um, that don't have names and distorted voices. So this is kind of like the, the secret version. Yeah. And Kozu mentions, he says, I thought I would be interrogated by or questioned by the council, not SEAL. So I wonder if that, like, I don't know, kind of a red herring, like we thought that SEAL and that council of five were the same thing. And in this episode, they mentioned the UN Security Council. So maybe that actually is the UN Security Council. Hmm. And they've been trying to make us think that that and SEAL are the same thing up until this point. I was just thinking, or it becomes the same thing. Oh, well, we do get something interesting there. We So we get these uh, mentions of a company or organization that they're all working for called Giren, or I can quite get the uh, pronunciation but that eventually becomes nerve right okay yeah. so yeah, yeah i'm sorry so uh uh kozo's thinking back to his time in 1999 right before the second impact and we get to meet for the first time no face covering uh yui akari which is shinji's mother and gendo's soon-to-be wife because this is the first time that kozo's meeting him I kind of liked it too. I mean, so it's kind of like, oh, there's this promising student, Ikari, and they like start Koza's conversation with him without you seeing the person. And I at least assumed it was Gendo. And then it's kind of this surprise, like, oh, actually, Yui is like the talented young scientist. Uh, I thought that was cool. Yeah. And it gives us, we had some line in an earlier episode that, Gendo had taken his wife's last name, which was not tradition, huh. right? I, I didn't realize they'd foreshadowed that already. I forgot about that, yeah. Because that was my question. I was like, that's not normal, right? Um, I actually looked that up because I was that was kind of confusing. I'll link where I found this at. But it says, in Japan, it's normally the bride who changes her name. But occasionally, the mm -hmm. groom will do so if his new wife's family is of higher social status, especially oh. if she has no brothers to carry on the family name. Mm. Mm. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. And we learn soon that his last name is Rokobungi. I don't know if he just wanted a simpler last name <laughs> or maybe, or we hear that uh, right after this next scene, Gendo, or I'm sorry, Kozo bails out Gendo. That's the first time they meet. Gendo got into some drunken bar brawl and Kozo gets him out of holding. And Kozo mentions that Gendo's fame precedes him. And we find out later that he has mass amounts of money. 
behind him. So I don't know if he's just independently wealthy or if he's already kind of a fascist leader on the rise who's taking more and more control of things as he rises up. But maybe Gendo changed his last name to avoid people knowing who he was. Right. Mm. So I don't know. Like like the opposite of uh, Emilio Estevez. Where his the rest of his oh, family yeah, changed their last name. Yeah, they they all changed their last name to Sheen, and he yeah. kept it as Estevez. Just a little tidbit. I was looking up Giren, so I was curious if that um, meant anything. And I guess it's German for brain. So at Ooh. first it was brain, and then it became nerve. Oh wow, the focal point. And soul or seal, which soul? And I'm going to keep mispronouncing it. I don't care how they pronounce it. <laughs> so. Um, Garen becomes Nerve, right? So the I guess from the very beginning, that's been Gendo's plan. Like whatever human instrumentality ha- becomes, like he has had this idea of all of humanity under one brain, under one nerve, under one soul. He's had this since he's had any sort of authority or power. So this has been his plan from the very beginning. Sinister. Very. Yeah, and I guess um, with the... Um... The professor, like going back to uh, the teacher-student relationship thing, it's very weird because it, it's hard for me to tell if the professor really doesn't like Gendo or if he's jealous of Gendo and Yui. I, I kind of was picking up vibes like that. Even with the second watch, you know, I, I don't think they make it explicit, but I got the yeah. sense that like he's kind of into her and then she's like, he's like, what do you see in this like Gendo dude? Like, I can't bring myself to like him. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. I didn't pick up on that at all, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And like, it makes sense from his point of view too, because he's like, we study the same stuff. Like we're so compatible. Oh, okay, fine. You like this guy? That's fine. Fuck him. (laughs) And it makes some of his actions later on in the episode kind of, again, those, I mean, seem very much like a... (laughs) Well, yeah, their whole relationship now is in a new light, right? Because it used to be him as the teacher and there was kind of a respect. And like, he wasn't Gendo's teacher, but there was this respect that Gendo had for him, and now he's second in command to Gendo. Yeah. He's subservient to Gendo's. And like, we don't know exactly how subservient because he has some ideas of his own still. Yeah, I'm curious if it kind of like, if there's things that I didn't pick up on, like little subtle things between him and Gendo earlier on. Um, none, none are really coming to mind, but I'd completely forgotten about that aspect of their relationship. Mm. But I wonder if we will see something related to this still coming. I don't know. Mm. Yeah, we're going to keep a close Co- eye on Kozo, or Kozo. Yeah, Kozo might not mm. be as um, as loyal to Gendo as we think, right? Yeah, maybe he's loyal to Yui. Like, he's still on the project just because he really respected his uh, student. Yeah, or, or maybe to Seal since, well, I don't know. I guess they kidnapped him, but it seems like he's spilling the beans about Gendo to them. I feel like they could have just asked him. I feel like he would have just come to their left to like black bag him and put him in a room. And he recognizes one of the voices he hears or like, maybe he doesn't recognize the voice, but one of the SEAL council people, audio only, the big black monolith, like he recognizes them. He like talk. he's like, oh, this is what we're, or I, I didn't expect to be uh, you. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I think the screens do say like SEAL 01, CLO2. Mm. So maybe it's that that he's referring to. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Because he mentions this other guy in his narration. He mentions this Keel person, K E E L. 
and that person has never been mentioned before and i don't remember him in the series at all so maybe he's just one of those uh seal monoliths or maybe all the seal monoliths have another name that rhymes with seal uh, so Kozo and Yui, they take a walk in the woods, uh, seemingly in the last autumn that Japan will ever have. Because immediately after this, he mentions that after the second impact, Japan lost its seasons. Yeah. And we assume yeah. a lot of the world has lost its seasons. So it's a perpetual summer. So Kiel is the guy from the security council that has that weird like visor sunglasses thing. Oh, interesting. Kiel Lorenz. Hmm. He has changed a little bit in the intervening years. And then Kozo also starts a, I, we're starting to like Kozo, or at least I am, because he starts a medical practice in the ruins of one of the cities of Japan. So there's like a giant boat that most people are living on, but he chooses to live down below the boat where the air is a little cleaner because there aren't the, I guess, like diesel fumes. And even though he's not really a medical doctor, that's what he chooses to spend his time doing because he thinks it's useful. And I really, I don't know, respect that. It's like they need doctors and I'm here. Yeah. And I guess it's a little bit of, little bit of a like Noah's Ark sort of thing. It's the sea level rise and great flood. Oh yeah. Second impact. That makes sense because even if the sea level continues to rise, the people on the boat will be safe. Yeah. Anybody like boats? Anybody a big boat person? No. I don't know. I I like boats enough. Are you a big boat person? Yeah. Yeah. I would. What do you like about boats? I would live on a boathouse. No okay. way. No way. He's asking for it. <laughs> That's the beginning of the end right there, man. I think if I lived on a boathouse, I'd constantly have nightmares about the boat sinking while I was sleeping. Oh, that's horrifying. Why would yes. you do that? Because <laughs> oh. the sea levels are rising, baby. We gotta <laughs> prepare. Well, I'm saying make room if that happens, but pretty dry where I'm at right now. Just keep a boat on your roof just in case. Oh, yeah. I always yeah, wondered exactly. about that. I, I literally thought about that when they were showing the um, those, the devastation, the flooding, and everything, especially Louisiana. I was like, I would mm-hmm. literally. Why wouldn't you just put a boat on your roof, man? <laughs> like that seems to me like it would be like a driveway. It's just uh, like commonplace. At, at least have like a like inflatable inner no, tube. No full know? bore, dual <laughs> outboard motor. Because you want to get out of there. You want to make it at least to like Georgia. Before we have to refuel. Can we put a boat house on top of the house so it's like a hat on a hat? And then the insurance. Does the insurance stack? Like literally? <laughs> Whoa. Like is the boat under the house or up top? Because we gotta know which one to insure first. Wait, where's your car? <laughs> Let's start with the car. What if you built it into the house mm-hmm. in a way that if it flooded, it would then detach from the house? So you can oh. have it under your house insurance, your home insurance. You just wake up and you're floating. <laughs> Yeah. Your bedroom. The way Batman's motorcycle like comes out of the yeah. Batmobile when the Batmobile stops working. Yeah. I like that. That's thinking. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so they're walking in the, the last fall. Yui tells uh, Kozo that she's into Gendo. Kozo mentions, you know, that there are suspicions that Gendo was just kind of using her, and that he sought her out because of her knowledge, um, and that he was a member of a group which he later learned was SEAL. Is, is it just me, or does Yui seem uh, very cold as well in the way that she interacts? Very detached, very kind of like just logical thinking. Um, she doesn't seem to express much kind of emotion like she's just sort of mentioning things um and like uh, kozo seems to have a have a reaction and she's just kind of like okay was should i not have done that but didn't get offended didn't get upset that like kozo was saying like i don't really like the guy and it just seems kind of like that whole 
trio of them is either psychopaths, sociopaths, or autistic, and I can't really tell. Mm. But maybe it's just me projecting uh, onto <laughs> oh. uh, onto her. I, but, uh, I, I hadn't picked up on that, but I feel like that totally makes sense. Um, you know, especially kind of given what we know about Ray, yeah, that yeah. there would be some of that too in um, in Yui, though maybe she uh, hides it a little better um, just because she's older or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, she at the very least she's very like kind of like matter of fact principles over emotions or something like that. Yeah, and it seems like like you know um, Koza seems to think that that Gendo has taken advantage of her, mm. but she's a very intelligent person. It seems kind of like it's it was a um, thing that where they both sort of saw the pragmatic usefulness of the relationship, mm-hmm. and then we're kind of like, yeah, let's do this. But it changes, right? Like, it, I think their relationship morphs over time because as we uh, uh, Dr. Akagi we meet soon, uh, she mentions that Gendo still. We'll get there, anyways. Yeah. Uh, this is the first time I've noticed that Gendo also has purple eyes, but then. Sometimes he doesn't. And then later in the episode, I swear that Shinji, his eye color changed as well in the last scene with Masato. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if there's any symbolism (laughs) there, but it looks like they have the same kind of like color change. I feel like we need to do- That's when their eyes go cold and dead. We need to do like a lightsaber color thing for eye color in Evangelion. I wouldn't be surprised. Red means you're a clone. There, There's a lot of stuff with colors in general, like kind of like the end sequence and the red moon and the whatever, red for blood. I don't know. Mm, definitely. So we learn that Gendo has a vast sum of money because he's basically privately funding a lot of this research that Geren, 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 the German word for brain. The stuff they're doing, he's funding all of it. The excavation underneath... Uh, Tokyo, the expedition to, who knows, he might have even funded the entire expedition to the Antarctic uh, that caused uh, the second impact in the first place. Yeah, I guess he or Uh, like he and Seal. And that's because they supposedly have these like Dead Sea Scrolls, right? That predicted all this stuff. And that was Mm -hmm. why they went down to Antarctica. Is that right? That makes sense. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know which came first. Did they find the Dead Sea Scrolls in Antarctica, or did the or did uh, they the D- Dead Sea Scrolls lead them to Antarctica? Yeah, and I had a an interesting thought with with the Dead Sea Scrolls and um, uh, Gendo having them and kind of what they talk about their use being. It was sort of like the opposite of Darth Plagueis. It was like he could save himself from death, but not others. Hmm. Just sort of weird, uh, kind of like as the episode progresses. Yeah. Uh, it seems like maybe he only wants to save himself. But. Yeah, my, my impression is that, you know, like he somehow knew that there was going to be this disaster. And I, I forget if they've mentioned that the Dead Sea Scrolls predict the third impact <coughs> or the second impact. But if they predicted the second impact, then that would mean that they already had it, right? Since the second impact happens in Antarctica. Because he shows up there and he's like, how did you get here? Um, like, I thought, I'm surprised you survived. And then he's like, oh, I managed to get out of there in time. Yeah. Oh, well, you managed to get all of your research out, too. Yeah. Isn't that funny? Like, yeah. hmm. Yeah. We sit, we find out that Misato is the only survivor of the second impact, or at least at that at the site, right? right. Like, and the only person who is at the facility. So that means that Gendo's also a survivor, but he wasn't there when it happened, yeah. right? He had left. Okay. Yeah, he said he left a day before it happened. Um, we kind of jump to... Gendo 
Oh, showing Kozo the, the geo front. He takes him underground for the first yeah, time. Yeah, so, so this is after Gendo has re-met Kozo. They went down to Antarctica to investigate the second impact stuff. You know, maybe it's just more for show than anything else. Kozo finds out the secrets. He's going to expose what Seal is doing. But before he does, Gendo implores him um, to kind of see what he's been working on. Uh, they go down into the geofront. We learn that the geofront wasn't actually built, but that there was already this kind of giant spherical cave underneath Tokyo 3, um, or at least that's what Gendo says, oh. and that there is a similar one in Antarctica, which I have suspicions about we can get to in the spoiler section maybe. And uh, down there, um, among other people, Kozo meets uh, Ritsuko's mother, Dr. Akagi, um, who is in the process of developing the the Magi at the time. Yeah, and we get to see a, sh- uh, a short shot of young Ritsuko, who's one, compliant to her mother's wishes, just says like, yes, uh, and is very prim and proper, almost still in a school outfit. Uh, and she has the same hair color as her mother, kind of a magenta, almost purple. And so we see that Ritsuko changed drastically from, I guess, the end of her high school career there to when she goes to college. The next scene we see her in, she's dyed her hair blonde and she's taken up smoking and she doesn't exactly want to be just like her mother anymore. And, and so that next part of the story is kind of told in letters back and forth between Ritsuko um, and her mother, Dr. Akagi, about meeting Misato. We learned that for a while, Misato can speak, but now she's back to speaking. Yeah, and she talks a lot. Ritsuko says she must be making up for lost time. I love it. Then we have a conversation between Kozo and Yui by this kind of sparkling water bay. Shinji's a toddler there, and kind of Kozo doesn't want her to um, volunteer for this experiment, but she feels like, you know, she just wants to go along with uh, what's going on or kind of go along with, I guess, whatever, which I know that that's kind of like a, a like Taoist philosophy is to just kind of not resist. It's kind of like a lot of stuff in your life is out of your control. And so just kind of like give into the flow of your life versus um, trying to actively fight against things that you can't control. Um, And since we have a bunch of different characters kind of representing different religions, I I wondered if that could be something with with Yui. Hmm. Wow, that's really interesting. I didn't think about that. Does that mean that salmon are (laughs) anti-Taoists? They do not believe in going with the flow. (laughs) That's why they taste different than other fish. (laughs) That's exactly what it is. They're against the other fish, or at least philosophically. Right. Yeah, and then we get... The scene, we don't get to see what happens, but we get the scene of Yui Akari's, what they call a contact experiment. And Kozo scolds Gendo for having Shinji there. And it turns out, oh, well, actually, Gendo wasn't the one that asked for Shinji to be there. Yui actually wanted Shinji to see her, his mom uh, in her like big moment, you know? So we don't get to see much of what's happening, but I assume that Yui is attempting an interface with one of the Avas, probably OO, because we don't know if O1 has been built at this point. Yeah. And I think it's super tragic that Yui insisted Shinji be there on that day, which kind of ensures Shinji's trauma 
like she couldn't have known that it would go bad, but like Shinji's there when his mother disappears. Like in that scene, he's about four. And we learned recently that's when he ran away from home for the first time. And so like, there you go. That's why he ran away because he was there when his mother disappeared or died or whatever happens to her. And that trauma was too much for him. So, And I'm sure he didn't get any support from Gendo. So he just left. And that's kind of been his modus operandi through his entire life. Like when things get too hard and no one's supporting you, just go, just get away from it. And I mean, it makes sense. Especially, really blame especially when it's things that you're, if, you know, if the, the, the um, autism spectrum thing is to, to be looked at again, mm-hmm. um, if you're not equipped for it, you're like, I don't know how to do this. So I'm just going to leave. Mm-hmm. Yes. And he does that specifically later on in the episode too. Yeah. It's interesting. And, and it's kind of, you know, we've been talking about this being an accident a lot, but I think there is a question of kind of, does Gendo know what's going to happen? Maybe even Yui knows what's going to happen. And this is kind of something she's doing willingly. You know, she wants Shinji to be there for that moment for whatever reason. Yeah, the 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 scene where they're in front of the lake and she's looking at Shinji with, you know, like her kind of blank expressionless face. Um, she's like, this is about Shinji. This is for him. She maybe like, like, and to agree with what you're saying, maybe she's aware and she knew then what they were going to have to do later. Yeah, she's kind of resigned to her fate. She sees the river that she is swimming down and sees the end point. And she's like, oh, well, I can't avoid that. But I can make sure what happens is for my son, for the next generation. Yeah. Poor Yui. Just caught up in these big, big forces. I mean, she's doing her part too. She's like a revolutionary uh, scientist, right? Yeah. Okay, and then we get to see... Ritsuko, Ritsuko straight out of college joins Project E, which is the Ava project, right? And we get a scene with her, I guess, coming on board. And then we, is it the same scene that Akagi, Dr. Akagi, her mother meets or sees Ray by herself? I think that comes later, yeah, because she meets her kind of by accident, right? Or thinks it's Shinji. Yeah. Uh, there's weird thing, Ritsuko, she had abandoned the dress style that she had before college, during college. But in the scene where she comes back to join Project E, she she puts back on the scarf or little tie thing that she had on before. And I don't know if that was a, a nudge to like, kind of she's getting back closer to her mother. So she, you know, people tend to, if you see an old friend or see your parents after a long time, a lot of times people will even unconsciously revert to the role that they were with them before. So like, you know, you don't act like a child unless your parent is around and then you act like their child, right? Right. Not you specifically, David, but (laughs) one does this. Wow. Okay, and then with Ritsuko's help, Dr. Akagi finishes the Magi and we find out that Masato, right out of college, joined the same organization. There's no nerve yet, right? We're still in this German brain organization and Masato is at the third facility, which is in Germany. So I assume that First facility is Japan, second facility is America, and then third facility is Germany. Yeah. <laughs> Did you say, of course, course, David? Yeah, third branch, third Reich. Yeah. That's what I thought you did. Yeah. Oh, I didn't catch up on that. That's crazy. He's like, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Anything three. <laughs> <laughs> there is a lot of that, though. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of genetic uh, uh, heritage components of the Ava project. 
that would really agree with them Germans. Germans. I think I know what the S2 drive is. Oh, Oh, no. Uh, Immediately after Dr. Akagi completes the Magi, we get a a late night scene where she's about to be finished with work. And a young, like four, maybe six-year-old Ray wanders into her office. She's very nice. She says, like, she has this weird moment where the first time she meets Ray, where she's like, Ray reminds me of someone. And I think we can just say whatever we want. I don't know that we need spoilers for this anymore if if people are guessing things. But she says Ray looks just, or reminds her of Yui, not just the way that she looks, but also the way that she speaks. Ray has a very monotone, matter-of-fact way of speaking, almost like it's, you know, nature versus nurture. And she goes to look up kind of information about this um, Ray Ayanami. You know, it seems like she has access to some database with information about everyone. Um, And she says that, you know, the information has been wiped. There's no information about Ray Ayanami. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very um, uh, cold uh, interaction. Mm. Ray and um, uh, Akagi. No, just very, just like, no, this is what happened. And this was said. And this is how it is. I'm just repeating things. I don't care. I'm just saying it. So Dr. Akagi meeting with Ray, or I mean, uh, talking with Ray in her office, it seems like late at night, or at least at the end of a work day. This is the scene that really stood out to me. I mean, I'm sure this is the scene that stands out to people when they're thinking of this episode. Uh, But it stood out to me in... It was the only scene that I really found a sort of metaphor or a higher statement in. So Dr. Akagi offers to help Ray, to help her lead her out and be like, oh, I can get you out of the facility. I can uh, take you where you need to go if you need to find Gendo. And Ray refuses flat out, right? No. She says, well, you're not going to be able to find your way out on your own. Like, let me help you. And Ray says, I don't need your help, you old hag. And Dr. Akagi, like, remains composed. She's like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to have to tell Gendo that you're being mean to people. And Ray reveals that, no, 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 it's Gendo that I'm mimicking. Like, he's the one who's talking about this. He's the one who's saying, you're an old hag. Right, but, well, yeah, I mean, is is he? Because at this point, we've already seen that Akagi and Gendo have some sort of relationship going on with, like these short, sort of short little scenes mm-hmm. um, that are kind of interspersed. And um, so it's like, you know, is Ray having this weird Oedipus like mm. kind of like, or jealousy of an older woman being with this guy that she's maybe she's infatuated with and sort of like, Oh no, he's the one that called you that at six. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's Freud, man. <laughs> <laughs> Damn you Freud. Yeah. So the, the symbolism that I, at least formed in my mind was that this scene is a statement on the way that hierarchy, patriarchy, and I would say even capitalism pits women against each other Mm. and treats them more than it treats, at least in lip service, it treats women more than it treats men as a disposable, renewable commodity, right? Like not only can you be part of the labor force, do you have a mind, but you also make you perpetuate the human race. So you're a res like women are a resource that needs to be defended, but saying that they they're a resource and saying that they need to be defended is taking away their own autonomy, right? Right. But the danger is not only that uh, women are treated as separate or other or second class citizen, but that it pits them against each other. You know, like if you're 
disposable, if you as a person wear out, well, that means that there's got to be someone else to take your place. And so it falls on the new generation to threaten the old generation. And it falls on the old generation to, under this system, like you're training your replacement. And not in a human, like chaining the next generation, hoping that they do better and have a better life than you do. Like that's kind of keeping generational information flow as kind of divine or sacred. But in this way, it takes that away and it just makes you, like I said, a commodity. Right. And it's a horrifying scene, but it's an understandable backlash against the system because Akagi realizes, well, she knows beforehand, she knows that she's not the love of Gendo's life. Right. She knows that she's not the person in charge of nerve or seal or any of these things. And she knows that now that she has created the Magi, she's disposable, right? And that anxiety manifests in this explosive action uh, where she, she has this like vision where she kind of goes back and forth between Ray's image and Gendo's image and, and Yui's image. And before she knows it, or before we know it as the audience, she's choking this child to death. Yeah. And she's telling her, you can be replaced too. There are many more to follow in your place. Mm. And that, yeah. you know, it has two meanings. Like she means specifically that Akagi probably maybe has guessed that Ray is not a normal child, but also saying like, you're insulting me, you're calling me an old hag, you're pointing out my disposability. And so she kind of mirrors that sentiment, but in this violent, uncontrolled manner. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, and then I think on top of that, part of her feeling disposable, the imminent threat isn't necessarily Ray at this point, but actually her daughter, who's now here as this, this young woman and this young scientist. I think she feels like maybe, you know, Ray is disposable because of you know, spoilers about Ray, but that she's disposable because Ritsuko is here now. Yeah, because she says, um, at least in the the uh, subtitles I had for the Japanese version, she says, like, uh, you can be replaced just like me. Right, and the, the real enemy here is not either of them. It's right. Gendo, right? right? But it, 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 it displaces that anger, that frustration onto other women mm-hmm. and yeah. makes that a competition. And I, I liked uh, I liked your interpretation. Um, I liked your interpretation too, David. Um, so kind of like there's this kind of commentary. There's maybe this Freudian thing going on, and I think there's maybe also this kind of surface level thing of kind of more from Ray's perspective versus Akagi that Ray is literally just like this little autistic girl or whatever who means no harm at all to Akagi but it's just like repeating words oh, that sure. she doesn't understand their context. She's not trying to be aggressive yeah. at all. She's like a weird little child. And then that just triggers all this stuff within Akagi and, yeah. and kind of brings her to that rage. Well, yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, Akagi already feels that she's you know older and she's going to be replaced. And then this you know child who she says reminds her of Yui, who is her romantic interests, like, you know, dead wife like is, you know, saying these things. And it's like, look, I already feel like Gendo doesn't care about me as much as he cared about Yui. And now you remind me of Yui and 
you're telling me that you know I'm this old hag and it's like look even if you were an old hag you are qualified in so many ways you are so mm-hmm. intelligent you know you you're very capable you do all these things but in your head that's mm. so important that's your worth to a man um the way that society has told you is your ability to be an attractive partner mm-hmm. which shouldn't matter that shouldn't have any effect on people people's view of their value like it's my opinion but right it's irrelevant to her as a scientist yeah. and like Oh, the Magi is almost this idealized version, right? Because she says she puts all of herself into the Magi, herself as a woman, herself as a mother, herself as a scientist. And it's this idealized thing where you can actually have those three parts. And each of them are valid and equal. But in society or societally, she still feels that push for beauty above the push for the other two, right? Yeah. Yeah. Just tragic. Not by, yeah, and by no fault of her own. And that's real, right? This yeah. is not a 1995 problem. This yeah. is a 2020 problem, right? That is still how the media portrays women. We were talking about this on the last episode we had you on for, Dre. Like you noted that you hoped it, our generation didn't really feel this way, but there was a push that you felt when you were younger uh, going towards 30, like, oh, you better get married by 30. You better have a partner. You better have your life settled because after that, like nobody's really going to want to be with you. Yeah, it's uh, it's unfortunate. All these, I would hope that they were old tropes, but they're, you know, they're just as real now. And uh, it, it amazes me as I watch, you know, shows like this, like a lot of those things are still current, unfortunately. You know, so you guys get on, you guys get on that. Fix that. You guys <laughs> fix that. <laughs> this episode touches on that theme earlier on too, um, when Kozo is talking to Yui and, and asking, you know, what are you going to do when you graduate? Um, are you going to go work for a company? Or are you going to like work in a research lab? Um, which I guess kind of shows how progressive he is. He's like, you're a bright young scientist. Like, what are you going to do with that? And then she's like, I don't know. Maybe I'll just like uh, start a family if I meet someone. Because I guess despite being a brilliant scientist, that's kind of what's, uh, what's been ingrained in her. I was saying, she may want that. There's nothing wrong with wanting that. But it's, it's, it's very hard to tell in some of this, you know, in, in the way the world works is like how much of that is something you actually want that hasn't been projected onto you. And then so sometimes people fight back against it because they're like, this has been projected on me. I don't want to do that. And so it's very hard and you can't really have autonomy when you're brainwashed and then you don't know how you feel about it. Right. Well, okay. So earlier uh, in an early episode, we talked about uh, Ben made an excellent point about how it, it would be fairer as people are maturing sexually to have time away from everything to deal with those new emotions. But instead we are thrust into like high school and new social situations and like everything's super confusing. Right. Well, in a more perfect world, Yui and Dr. Akagi would both have the time to be a mother. Like Dr. Akagi laments not being able to spend enough time with Ritsuko. And Yui, by the nature of her work and what happened, she doesn't get to spend a lot of time with Shinji either just because she's gone when he's four. Well, I didn't realize the symmetry between their stories in this episode. They're two professional women whose like a lack of support from society causes them to derail emotionally or mentally because they're trying to do too, not trying to do too many things at the same time, but like, I don't know what I'm trying to say here, but there's something brilliant there. (laughs) 
uh, about how this episode shows us how, I guess, society uses women and disregards them as soon as they're seen as no longer useful. Right, and uses, uses them against each other, like you said earlier, to make them feel that they're useless. So it's like, you know, I'm the new hot young thing and you're this whatever. Yeah, like it's like, it, like you said, pits them against each other and sort of makes them, it like does the work for the patriarchy. Yeah. Like men don't need to break women down. Women are doing it to each other. Like it's not uh, because of the brainwashing stuff that goes on. Class struggle. Have the cl- class infighting. Have the, you know, have all the working class fighting each other while you just sit there and take all their money. Wow. Yeah, they, they keep it a little bit ambiguous, well, right? We see her strangling Ray. And then later on, we see like a chalk outline, blood, and the fact that everyone has moved except for Dr. Akagi. Yeah, what happens to her? That outline is definitely an adult size outline. Oh, I didn't pick up on that. But they leave that ambiguous. Regardless, she chokes a young Ray and there is retribution. We never hear from Dr. Akagi again. The uh, the company or the organization Gehren like goes under, it dissolves, and then everyone who worked for it just magically becomes a new nerve employee, which is something that happens, you know, today. Like huge companies, when they get into uh, hot water legally or with the public, they'll just dissolve and then rebuy all of their old stuff. Uh, on the auction market and then rehire all of their old people, come under a new name, and then, you know, most of the public is none the wiser. They have no idea. Are you talking about Daredevil again? (laughs) I was going to ask him to slow down. I was writing that down. (laughs) (laughs) So I liquidate. Then I rehire them. So the men in black come back, give Misato her card and gun back. You know, she asks about Kaji. They say they're still not sure um, where he is. We see Kaji kind of waiting with a fan. It seems like he's waiting for someone, um, sees them. Then we hear what sounds like a gunshot, and uh, that's it. And I have no idea what's going on here. (laughs) So if you guys have thoughts. I, I was just saying, it's, it's obviously it's someone he knows. It's probably who he was. I mean, it seems to be who he yeah. was waiting for. So it's it's unclear if if my opinion, what I gleaned from it, just looking at it, is that whoever set him, you know, whoever he was working for to go in and free the professor and do the other stuff is like, oh, you're we don't need you anymore. We got what we needed. Obviously, Misato just got her gun back. Ooh. Yeah, I thought that Kozo, or I thought that Kaji went and got Kozo on his own. Like, that was his last act. He was like, well, I'm just going to get Kozo out of there because he seems to know something is coming or think something is coming. And so it's his last thing. He's like, well, I kind of like that guy. So I'm going to go into the SEAL facility because I work for them as well as for Nerve. I'm a double or triple agent and I'll use what I can to just get him out. And that's what he does. And uh, I did read... Uh, a little bit about this episode right before we started. And there was, there's this version that we're seeing, or this episode is one of the few that was slightly changed Mm. after the original airing. And one of the reasons it was changed and one of the things that was changed is that scene with Kaji uh, saying hi to someone, then the screen goes black and there's a gunshot. A lot of people thought it was Masato shooting him. 
but they redid it and cut a line that made it seem more like Misato mm. was the one shooting him. She did just get her gun back, but then she's, I mean, we get back to the apartment and she listens to his final message, right? I mean, so there's a way of interpreting that of like, she's crying because she had to kill him for some reason or something like that. And, and mm. it, obviously from that, it sounds like that's a red herring and maybe they like made it more of a red herring and then just decided it was too much crisscrossing back and forth that you kind of lose some of the weight of that sad scene of Misato if you think she's a killer. It's interesting. There's so much in the show that's ambiguous and twists that I'm surprised they went back and, and edited it. Yeah, I think that um, the, the men in black took Misato's gun, used it to shoot him, and then gave it back to her afterward. Ooh, wow. He says something too when he's getting Kozo about like, well, I'm already like in hot water with nerve or something. You know, I might as well do something to get in the good graces of, I guess, Gendo? Hmm. He doesn't seem to specify, yeah. Okay, so I guess we're wrapping up, but this last scene is really, they take their time with it and there is some, you know, slow still shots so they save their animation budget or whatever, but it is just... Her tears uh, rolling off of her face is beautifully animated and really tragic. And there's a couple of things that happen, right? She gets a beer, starts drinking it, right? That's usually her go-to to stay in control is to have a drink, but it's not helping this time. Like we're beyond that. And then we get Shinji who's listening to his MB3 player or, or mini cassette thing. He's listening to, I think, track 26. And uh, he hears her crying, takes off his headphones, notices how distraught she is, but is unequipped emotionally to offer her the support she needs. And like, we get a, we get a, a voiceover from him that says, there was nothing I could say. There's nothing I could do. I was just a child. And like, that's not true. Like you, there are plenty of things that you could say, but even if you don't know the right thing to say, you can just be there. It might be hard, but you can sit with a person, you can hold a person, you can, but to him, there was nothing he could do. He didn't know how to, because no one ever taught him about that stuff because we don't have standardized training about that stuff uh, uh, in schools, right? Like we don't, I mean, my nephews who are grown up now, like nine and 11, they talk about having an emotional toolbox. And I'm like, whoa, I never got any of that stuff when I was a kid. Yeah, I got an emotional pocket knife. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone gets emotional, you show them this. <laughs> yeah. Well, back in the thirties, they taught us just to like hold it deep down in like a black hole in the middle of your chest. And the more your chest hurts, the better you're doing. Yes. Ooh, I like that. It's kind of like a, a, a points indicator. Like as your life goes on and it feels worse and worse, you're, you're getting your high score up. Yeah, there, right? one of your left side or right side gets numb. Yeah, there's, there's indicators that you're doing it right. Right, right, right. Heart attack is the, it's your, your left arm gets really <laughs> numb when you've really bottled it up. That's uh, game yeah. over. It's the rite of passage for the 50s. <laughs> Yeah, that's how working people pass into the next uh, mode of existence. The next phase of work. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> Anyways, uh, there's one shot. Misato is leaning on the table crying. And it's a pretty still shot until she kind of shoves or the table gives way a little bit. Yeah, I found it really 
jarring every time I watched it, really powerful every time I watched it, in the same way that the strange scene at the beginning, the, the footage we get of Second Impact is also very strange, or also hit me really hard because it's these still images and then something that's more stable, heavier, like the walls or some part of the scenery gives way. And it's the same thing with Misato, like to tie the beginning of the end of the, or the beginning of the episode to the end of the episode, she's pushing and pushing with all of her might because that's like how her pain is manifesting. And this rig heavy table, something that should be solid and supportive, like even hmm. that gives way. I did notice that. That's uh, that was pretty poignant. Yeah. Yeah, I like that observation about the symmetry, and and yeah, I also agree that was like a super effective scene. And some of it might be you're just like not expecting that. It's kind of like a degree of realism in the animation that's kind of like above and beyond. So like this thing that you're used to thinking about as like just the background, you know, they, they, that attention to detail, I think makes it feel very real. Yeah. And kind of a break from, I don't know about animation tradition, but I feel like that because usually when things are animated, like background and like tables, things like that, they're usually colored differently. They're usually animated in a different way because they're not going to move in the scene. It, oh, maybe that's why it stands out so much. If a table's going to move, it's going to get flipped over. If something solid is going to move, it's going to be like a really dramatic thing that happens to it. But in this, it just makes it feel more real. In the same way that like a physical prop in a movie feels more real over time than CGI. Because the CGI, your brain starts picking it out and displacing it. But the physical thing doesn't really, it almost doesn't matter how it looks. It's there. It's taking up space. People are, it's part of that actual reality you're viewing. So it makes the table more real. It's a weird <laughs> thing to say. <laughs> Sorry. Anyways. Okay. So uh, that's, that's the end of the episode. Is <laughs> Shinji covering his head with his pillow, wanting the world not to be so unba- unbearable. And he's still recovering from his latest trauma, right? Being in a dissociated state where his body phased out of like physicality and he was very in danger of not, not being himself anymore. You know, as much as I want him to go talk mm-hmm. to Masato and go give her the support that she has given him in the past. He's just, he's still not in yeah. a place to do it. I'd forgotten that. And I guess he came to like, woke up to like Misato, like crying over him, right? Yeah. And like, what could she say or do in that moment? But she did what she could. Oh, just so tragic. Shows yeah. so <laughs> okay. So next time we're going to get Osaka trauma. Like just Asuka getting beat up on. The narration was very specific about how every heart will break and the trauma will be too much. And I'm very excited to spend a bunch of time with Asuka because I don't even think we got to see her in this episode. No. Ray was there, but no Asuka. But it, it does make me very worried. And I'm I'm worried that the next episode is gonna really be a heartbreaker that I don't I don't remember what happens at all. So that's exciting. How about you, Dre? Do you got any final thoughts, spoilery stuff, stuff you want to plug? Uh, uh, no, I mean, I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying this series. Um, I hadn't heard of it before uh, I talked to you about it. And uh, 
it's surprising to me because usually you at least run across things, little, you know, excerpts, little bits and pieces of these types of shows. But, uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm really enjoying it. And I'm, I'm, I haven't gone ahead, so I'm very much looking forward to the next episode. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So thank you for inviting me on this journey. Oh, yeah. Thanks you for and, being on again. Crazy Ben. Yeah. Couldn't do Crazy Muscly Arms Ben. He's <laughs> pretty jacked. Uh, well, cool. Uh, I guess that's it. Uh, did you have anything else, Ben? No. Yeah, yeah. To go. Okay, cool. Uh, this was awesome. I had a really great time. Uh, and this episode is really, I'm sure I found it a little confusing and uh, uh, slow when I was younger. And this time I just, I would watch this again, like right now, just to get those moments of Prove beauty. It. And, uh, Dr. <laughs> Prove it. Okay, let's start. Okay. Pen. Pen. Oh. 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 I think I said the wrong word there. Oh, all right. Get it in editing it, Alex. <laughs> Fix it in post. Fix it in post. I, I was going to say, I have like two spoilersy things. So if we want to do a spoiler session. So one, one thing I thought was really cool is that um, when Yui dies, we hear Ray's theme. So I think that that was like a cool little bit of uh, subtle foreshadowing. Um, and then when they talk about mm. the geofront and this kind of like how there was already this big cave there, the way there was in Antarctica, I was wondering if these are somehow like the craters formed by Adam and Lilith falling. I think you're absolutely right there. Uh, that's something that I hadn't remembered and it was a cool thing to come up with in the in the episode because they say it is almost identical to the the space or the formation yeah. in Antarctica. And you're like, oh! Yeah, yeah. and then Kozo is like, are you like recreating it? But that's like a red herring, right? Like, yeah, I mean, it, it, um, the, I, I forgot that it was Lilith. I can't, you know, Lilith, uh, Apocrypha from the Bible is Adam's first wife and all that mm -hmm. stuff. And then in this episode, I think you and I talked about it last night, Alex, at least in my translation with the subtitles. It said man created Eva from Adam. I guess they do. I feel like they model it yeah, after it, Adam. Just the, the mm. I, yeah, I don't know. I guess it could just be the translation, but it seems very much like Adam and then his first wife, Lilith. And then that sort of causes this issue. And then man has sort of taken the place of God in, the, in this story, um, like nerve and, mm. and that kind of stuff. And they're like, oh, we're going to make yeah. Eve. Ikar maybe Ikari um, specifically kind of going along with him being yeah. the, the God figure. He takes Adam and creates yeah. Eve. It's just interesting in the way that like, it sort of flips it on its head, but in during the episode, they're sitting there going, we don't want to make a, a, a new God. Like, we don't want to do that. We don't want it. Like, that's not what we're trying to do. And, and I wonder what word is being translated there. Yeah. If it's like Kami, cause Kami, like a, there's, I think there's several Japanese words that could translate to God, but they have different connotations and yes. that Kami one is very interesting. Yes. It's almost like we were talking about, talking about you know, seraphim, cherubim, cher cherubim, whatever, however mm -hmm. you say it. Um, and then like the princes and kings and all these other different biblical you know, delineations and sort of hierarchies of 
angels specifically, mm-hmm. and then other sort of creatures. It's very, very strange setup, and the way that most of them are described is kind of hard to picture them, but a lot of times it's like they have you know wings on their face, wings on their backs, and wings on their feet. Oh, yeah, you mentioned that. Do you want to talk about that for a second? You mentioned that um, there are Old Testament, especially Old Testament, descriptions of angels that end up actually sounding like what we get on screen. Yeah, there's... Um, uh... There's an artist who did renditions of the descriptions he kind of gleaned from the Bible. I couldn't find any excerpts specifically that I would have interpreted that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but like uh, they, he did some renditions and those renditions, I'm like, that looks a lot like one of the angels. Mm. Um, but some of them having multiple arms and, you know, multiple legs. And uh, there are some that have, you know, four heads, some that have two heads. Um mm. And they're uh, usually amalgamations of things, um, which the angels, you know, there's the one with the tentacles. um, Mm -hmm. There's the one that splits in two. Mm -hmm. um, And then there's the one that's basically just a giant cube. That one really reminded me of the one that is in Elijah that I remember reading about where it's like wheels upon wheels upon wheels, just spinning around with this creature inside of it. And there's like eyes all over the wheels. And it's this Mm -hmm. kind of, um, strange thing, and when the um, when that cube kind of like ha- you know ends up going, it's it sort of just has this brilliant light, and it just made me think mm. of like that specifically. So they do a really good job of these very strange, um, very esoteric looking uh, you know creatures that they're fighting. Um, in some scenarios, sometimes they do just kind of look bipedal and you know not 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 all that strange, but right. But just like the Torah or the Bible, yeah. right? There are descriptions of angels coming in vaguely humanoid forms yeah. too, right? Yeah, um, and it it seems to it does a very good job, at least for me, um, of sort of evoking that feeling of like an Old Testament spiritual, uh, otherworldly, other dimensional being. Uh, just you know, like if you were to see it, you'd be horrified. Yeah, 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 like mind-breaking stuff. Like, yeah. H.P. Lovecraft's got nothing on the tour. Yeah, like you'd end up like Masaka, you wouldn't talk. <laughs> <laughs>